This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight, my guest is Margaret Bullet Jonas. She is an Episcopal priest serving at Grace Church in Amherst, Mass. And the reason I'm interviewing her is that her first book is called Holy Hunger, A Woman's Journey from Food Addiction to Spiritual Fulfillment. Welcome to Safe Space, Margaret. Thank you, Dr. Ann. So this series, as you know, is uh, ongoing, and it's about food and body image. And I read your book and was incredibly moved. Mm, thank really you. loved it. And um, I, I wanted to ask uh, if you might tell the story, you know, obviously in much briefer form, about your own relationship with food, how it started, kind of what it built to, and then kind of where you came from there. We'll interrupt it as it goes, but give us the summary. Sure. Well, I grew up in a very privileged environment. My dad was a Harvard professor, and my mother was a Radcliffe-educated daughter of a wealthy family. And on the outside, everything looked great, Um, a very successful-looking family. Uh, But as is often true with families. Uh, Inwardly, we were full of turmoil. My dad was actually struggling with alcoholism, though none of us would have named it that way at the time. And I think my mother was suffering with depression as I grew up. And I ended up turning to food as my solace and my companion and um, just my pal as a way of getting through life. So I I think it really took off uh, when I was an adolescent and my parents were separating and then divorcing, and I just discovered sugar as this way to numb myself, numb the pain, um, uh, and give myself, and a way of easing the loneliness that I I think I felt. Um, And outwardly, I was very successful. I was one of these kind of high-achieving kids who does well in school, and I went on to graduate school, actually went on to Harvard, and to get a Ph.D. in comparative literature. And on the outside, again, I was um, repeating the pattern in my family of looking good on the outside and winning awards and being this kind of stellar student. But secretly, I was binging, um, eating very compulsively, and then trying to manage it by uh, exercise. I would sometimes fast. Um, I think it was in college I fasted. Um, I finally counted up how many days I'd fasted during freshman year in college, and it was something like 30 days, Mm. Uh, not all at the same time, but five days here, five days there. Um, And and then I'd go out and run seven miles, whether it was blistering hot or icy snow, it didn't matter, I had had to run. So I never got really, really heavy, but um, my weight would go up and down like a yo-yo, and and if I always ate normally in public, so if I sat down with you at a restaurant, I would eat nice little, well-balanced, nutritious meal, and you, and then I'd go off um, afterwards and binge at home. And um, so it's very much of a, 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 an addict's life is very much of a double life. Uh, at least that was my experience of um, increasingly isolated. I think addiction is a dis- it's also a disease of isolation. I I told no one what I was doing. It was completely secret. And finally, it reached a crisis point for various reasons um, when I was 30 years old, and I, I really got to the point of it's really either get well, head toward healing, or die. Um, so in, in, in my book, Holy Hunger, I tell the story of what led to that turning point when I finally, <laughs> by, through the grace of God, 
uh, realized I had a choice to make and that there was that I needed help. I, I, I hit bottom, as they would say in the 12-step program. I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so it was a combination of things, but I, I found my way to um, Overeaters Anonymous, uh, which is a 12-step program, very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and with uh, that very concrete help, and then with the help of a therapist, and finally with the help of discovering the spiritual longing that was really within and beneath my addiction, I, a day at a time, got well. <laughs> I mean, it's still, anyway, as well as a person could be, I, I, <laughs> I found a life. And I, to me, those, those three things together can be very powerful, the combination of having a good therapist, if you can find one, and a 12-step program if you're an addict, and then also taking seriously um, our religious longings. Because I, I do think that we're all built as human beings with an infinite desire for the infinite, with, with a hunger for something that only only God, as I would name that mystery, uh, can satisfy. You know, it's interesting because you write about this in your book, and and yet in my experience, in my practice, I, I work with seminary students frequently. They speak of that spiritual longing also as so elusive at times. Mm. You know, you, you write about and speak about this longing that really couldn't be met with food, that only could be met in a spiritual way. And yet the spiritual life is not a guarantee of constant satisfaction, it would be. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder how, is it learning to bear that longing? Yes, I, I would. I, one of, uh, a phrase that's meant a lot to me over the years is uh, actually from Gerald May, who a, was a psychiatrist and a Christian who did some wonderful work on contemplative psychology and addiction. And he talks about we must learn to love our longing, hmm. finding a way to befriend that longing and sit with it, be with it. When I was eating, I would feel just the littlest twinge of needing something. I'd feel that, a restlessness or an, an urge, and whatever it was, I would try to fill it up with food. I would just grab for the sugar, grab for the donut or the bread or the cheese or the something. Um, and in recovery... I had to learn to just sit with the feeling. Oh, you can eat tomorrow. Tomorrow's a good day for eating. But for today, which is the only mm-hmm. day I really have any power over whatsoever, today I, I'm not going to hurt myself with food today. I, I need to just sit with the longing and see what, what it's telling me. Um, it's such an, it feels in some ways so countercultural, like not go buy something, not go exercise, but just be present. Sit with it. It's very countercultural. I think we live in a very addictive society, which is very quick. If we don't know what we ultimately want, we're extremely vulnerable to falling for what the society around us will tell us what we want. Yes. So, okay, so you went from, I mean, it's a big, it's a big passage, it seems to me, to go from sort of feeding any any early inklings of longing to eventually befriending and sitting with longing. And mm. tell me about that journey. How What was that like when you started to do it? Was it uncomfortable? Was it painful? Uh, well, <laughs> I wish I could tell you it was simple and easy, but it wasn't. It was painful. I, I, getting into recovery, is a, it's a painful process because 
first of all, you have to go through withdrawal. You have to be able to bear the discomfort of not anesthetizing yourself any longer with whatever substance or behavior you've been hanging on to um, to get by. Mm -hmm. So there's the pain of withdrawal, and then you have to feel... I'm sorry for all the bad news, but then you have to feel the pain of all the stuff you've been stuffing away all those years. You have to be willing to walk into the sorrow and walk into the fear and the anger and the loneliness. Um, but the good news is that that's being able to sit with that kind of pain, that's the pain that leads toward life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's the pain that leads toward freedom and that there's healing when we let ourselves feel that pain. And I, I also, this is where I think if, if you have a lot of pain to go through, it's really helpful to have a companion, to have a counselor or a therapist or someone with you, so you don't have to you don't have to do it alone. One one of the things I found very powerful in your writing was the awareness that you spoke of, where you realized that in a life of so much privilege, it had been easy to miss what you named as emotional deprivation, mm. and um, you know because you had a sense of yourself as having having everything, having so many opportunities, and so on. And um, tell me more about the link between emotional deprivation and the difficulty in sitting with your feelings? Well, I, I, just, um, I just didn't have the tools uh, to know how to feed myself, how to feed myself emotionally. Hmm. Uh, I, I remember, I vividly remember uh, one, I didn't write about this in the book, but I remember a moment uh, when I was very sad and I, I realized, again, of course, I have a choice. I I can go jump into the refrigerator or the pantry, or I can be with myself and my sorrow. And I somehow took myself to the sofa and lay down and said, okay, now I need to mother myself. I need to be a good mother for myself. And a good mother would let her child weep and would comfort the child. So it it was kind of a process of learning to grow a good, strong mother (laughs) Mm. Uh, for Inside. myself, within myself, for myself. Yeah, someone who would hold you and wipe your forehead and comfort you. That's right. And do you do that for yourself not even now? I do. I do. Uh, it's. Uh, I got into recovery back in the 19, well, April 13th, 1982 was <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, the day I made that turning point and um, when I sing Amazing Grace, it, I always that's I was lost and now I'm found. I I think back to that day. Mm. Um, the the impulse to overeat has really uh, I can't say it's entirely left me, but that it's uh, I still have to kind of keep my eyes open. It's still a vulnerability or an Achilles heel. I think it'll be with me all my life and keep me humble. Um, <laughs> but I I do think I have learned. I've learned a great deal um, about how to comfort myself, how to ask for help, how to stand up for myself, how to bear conflict, all those all those basic human skills which used to completely elude me when I was when I was active in my addiction. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking to Margaret Bullet Jonas about. Uh, your experience with bulimia and recovery and um, ultimately the spiritual journey that took you on. I want to come back to one of the things I found is that as I was listening to, as I was reading your book, I, I started making a list of all the ways that 
food, all the reasons you turn to food. Mm. And it was very powerful. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it because I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. You turn to food for comfort, for companionship, for solace, for strength, for invisibility, to take away pain, to choke off or stifle longing, to numb myself, to fill a hole in my heart, and to ease loneliness. Mm. So what a powerful list. No wonder someone would want that. I've never heard anyone put the whole list together like that. <laughs> Thank you. But it helps me to see how many dimensions were in that relationship to food. Yes. And one of the ones that struck me that I wanted to ask you that felt one I hadn't heard before was you talked about if I ate a little bit more and I got a little heavier, I started to feel invisible. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. Mm. Mm. Oh, yes, I remember that feeling. I remember when I was heavy and I started to lose some weight, I remember the anxiety that my collarbones would show because if my collarbones started to show, then my anger would start to show. I, um, Your angry bones. My angry bone. my bones were angry. <laughs> I didn't want them to show... Um, so there's some, so it w- there was a way in which I felt very camouflaged and hidden if I was heavy. Almost as if your feelings that you weren't supposed to have would, wouldn't show through? Yeah. That I, I imagine that if I'm heavy, no one will see how angry I am, how sad I am, uh-huh. <laughs> how frightened I am. It'll, it'll all be hidden. So I had to be willing to let that. I had to be willing to become a bit more transparent as my bones did start to show. Yes, you know it's so interesting because when I first read it, I was actually reading it in a very different way. I was imagining that what you meant was, in our society, to be a thin woman is to be a sex object, is to be noticed, is to be attract attention, mm. and that if you are a little bit heavier, maybe you can go slightly under the radar and not evoke all that notice in a way that might feel safer. That's true, too. That's I see. true, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there can be kind of a safety if I'm not, an, I'm, I can't be objectified or I'm not a commodity. Yeah. 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 Um, so I want to, I want to shift because talking about your angry bones brings me to another subject that I really was moved by in your book. You talked at one point about the process of writing, writing this story and I'd, I'd like to really focus on that now because your book is incredibly honest and deals with a very painful portrait, particularly of your father, but also of your mother. And um, I, I'd love to hear you talk about how you decided, what gave you the courage to be so open. Talk about transparent. You were very mm. transparent. Mm. How, wh- what was your process like in deciding to, to write this and to be public with it? The desire to write a book about desire just emerged. It was, uh, I can't really even account for it. I was having a, <laughs> this, I wrote the book a good number of years after getting into recovery, and I was, uh, had a good life, and somehow this, this need to write about it arose. Um, I just needed to tell the story, um, per- perhaps partly because I needed to understand it, and also I wanted to um, appropriate it or, or take in its its healing at a deeper level. Mm. 
And what I discovered was it was incredibly scary to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember every morning I would start by praying. I would just sit in prayer and try to let my mind get as quiet as possible and be as spacious as possible. And then I would just notice what the fear was, like, oh, my gosh, if I write this next bit, um, everyone's going to hate me. I'm going to totally humiliate myself. I can't believe that this deep, dark, shameful secret will be on the page and someone else will read it. And I just had to kind of walk through the fear each day. And then, I, and then I, after I'd finished praying, I'd sit up, okay, okay, back to the computer. Let's just see what we can do. Hmm. Um, I tried to... My goal in writing it was to tell the truth in love, which is a line in the New Testament. There's a line there somewhere about speaking the truth in love. And that that became my my mantra, kind of. How how could I tell the story in a way that was true, but in a way that saw every person in the story, including myself, with eyes of compassion? And that turns out to be really hard. (laughs) So there were a lot of drafts. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And you said, you know, you when we were preparing for this interview, you told me that I I read that passage back to you. I told you about you're saying that the stories that heal are the stories that are told with truth and love. Mm. And you said, I have a story I want to tell you about that, but I'm going to wait. And it's something about the most angry time when I was writing, and I'm curious to know that. Well, it was, I was writing a scene in the book where I describe, it's pretty early on in the book, I'm trying to describe my family that looks so great on the outside and is secretly so unhappy and confused on the inside. And we just moved into uh, Quincy House, where my father was master. This is one of the Harvard houses, and uh, we had a penthouse on the seventh and eighth floors, and uh, the eighth floor had a big terrace on it, and they hadn't yet finished constructing the terrace, so there was no fence around the edge. So I, I tell the story of how this little dog we had was allowed to run freely on the terrace and ended going over the edge. And I tell the story partly as a metaphor of, of the smallest member of our family was the first one to go. And and so I'm writing the story, and and. I'm feeling again the anger of like, oh, my father was so alcoholic and so out of control, and he, and my mother was so depressed. And what were these parents thinking when they let this dog go out on the terrace when there's no fence around the edge? And wh- how could they be so negligent, forgetful, and et cetera? Blah, blah. Yes. So all my anger came up on the page. Well, that night, <laughs> that night, I changed the water. I was, oh, oh, just to finish that little piece, I was eight years old when I watched this dog go over the edge and fall to his death eight, eight stories down. So mm-hmm. part of the anger is how could this, how awful did this happen to an eight-year-old? So that night I decided to change the water in a, um, a big uh, aquarium that I had in my study, um, you know, 15 gallons. I'm changing the yeah. water, and I did something wrong with the air filter, and all the fish but one died. They're all floating mm-hmm. on the surface. And my son, oh. Sam, is eight years old. Oh. And it's like, what happened to the fish? And I, I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm completely capable of doing every single thing that my mother and my father did. In fact, I've done my own fair share of the same thing. So if I can't tell this story about the dog going over the edge in a compassionate way, then I just I can't be compassionate to myself either. What a powerful story. So you found your parents in yourself. That's right. And you had to find a way to love them. I had to love them, yeah. 
That's right. And not condemn them. Yeah. Oh, it's so parenting is so humbling. <laughs> There's nothing like it. Yeah. To humble us. That's true. That's a powerful story. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you now uh, a little bit more about your voice in speaking it. Another passage from the book that I loved is where you talk about being a Harvard graduate student and learning to write like a man, mm. learning how to take the word I and particularly the words I feel, out and instead say something like, this essay will argue that, or one feels or one suspects. One suspects. Yes. Even worse. Yes. That's the suspicious. Yes. One doesn't feel, one suspects. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think so many people who come through academics and college and even high school get taught, you're not allowed to write with the I. You're supposed to write this essay will argue that. And... Um, I'd love to hear how you gave yourself permission to write about yourself and your own feelings when you were so schooled in such an intellectual masculine discourse. Mm. Uh, I don't, I, it was, I, I think it's a, it's a sign of healing whenever we can start a sentence with the word I, at least for <laughs> those of us who grew up not feeling we had a voice. Um, I think the, the rules in an alcoholic home are often don't, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Mm. So for, for folks who grew up in a home like that or any kind of shame-based home, it, it takes sometimes great courage to take out a piece of paper and write the word, I feel. Um, so it was, very, it was very healing for me to begin to explore that and realize, no, I get to have a voice. I get to listen to myself. I get to honor my own truth. Was that one of the fears that came up when you when you prayed in the mornings before writing? Like, oh my gosh, I'm 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 not allowed to do this. Somehow this is bad or less than or not as good or not legitimate. Oh yes, all those, all, <laughs> all of the above, all, all of the, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Yes. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Margaret Bullet Jonas about her book Holy Hunger and about her recovery from bulimia. So I want to ask you now a little bit more about OA, Overeaters Anonymous, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think a lot of people wonder about, you know, how do you recover from an addiction when you have to keep eating? Mm. You know, unlike alcohol, where total abstinence is clearly the recommendation of AA, in OA you have to eat. And I'd love to hear about what you came to understand about what does moderation mean? What is abstinence in OA? Well, the only um, the only requirement for membership in OA is a desire not to eat compulsively, a desire to learn to live in a more peaceful way with food. And all of us who are in OA are trying to stay abstinent, which is equivalent to staying sober for a, a drunk or staying clean for a junkie. And uh, you're right, um, the difference with food is that it's a substance we have to interact with all the time. We have to eat in order to survive, and we have to prepare food for other people and for ourselves, and we have to, it's like hand, handling your own drug every day. So it, it, takes, um, it takes an incredible surrender uh, and humility, I think, um, especially in the early days of abstinence to keep interacting with one's drug of choice. Uh, what, what helped me was... Um, to think about which foods I tended to binge on and to keep those out of the house, um, which was <laughs> was actually almost could be almost anything. Mm. Um, but then slowly I reintroduced 
foods. Um, as I and as I stayed with the program, I realized I could eat them in moderation. The the one food that for me just I just don't eat and haven't eaten since 1982 is any kind of sugar, because for at least for me it just it's it's such a trigger, um, and I don't know whether it's physiological or psychological or both. Uh, but for me, it's really helpful to have that line in the sand as, as a daily reminder of I just I just don't do sugar or honey or sweets or anything like that. I, I am a compulsive overeater, um, and it's a way to respect that. Um, mm-hmm. But I but I eat other things. I, I had very very high structure at the very beginning because my when I walked into OA, I was so chaotic. Um, I got a sponsor, which is what we do in the program. It was a like a. a a person with more experience who could be like a coach for me. And I would call her every day, and I would had a food plan, and for a while I weighed and measured all my food, um, trying to get very intentional about what I put in my mouth. And I even for a while, I, I used to eat with chopsticks for a while. This is not required at all in a way, but it was just uh, trying to become more conscious of what am I doing with food. Uh, to sort of slow it down almost. Slow it down and really taste Taste the food. Let yourself be fed by the food um, so that as you're present to the sensations. Yes. One of the things you talked about and that many people tell me also is that when on a binge, it's so fast. Yeah. There's no savoring. No. Yeah. So, so of course, it doesn't satisfy in a way. No. There's, yeah, there's no end to it. You're, you're stuffed and, and, and you're still hungry. It's, it's a very painful contradiction. Yeah. You know, so people in my practice talk to me about this question of whether to give up sugar altogether and how to think of it in addiction. How is it the same? How is it different? And um, I'm curious, with you, you sound very clear. It's been very, very helpful for you to not have sugar at all. How do you um, avoid the feeling of deprivation that that can engender to not have sweets? Does that give you a feeling of deprivation? Oh, today, not a bit, not not a bit. I, it's uh, it's like <laughs> that food does not have my name on it, and thank God I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to get back into that incredibly confusing conversation about, well, should I have one or should I have two or should I have the whole bag or the whole loaf or the whole whatever. I just don't even have to get into that conversation. Um, I, th- I think at the beginning there was a feeling, I'm sure I know there was a feeling of loss and sorrow, um, so like grieving the loss of a lover, um, mm-hmm. but it was, uh, there were, there, there were ways to work with that. I, I would tell myself, well, tomorrow I can eat 20 candy bars if I want to. I can, I can eat the whole bowl of pudding, to, but I, I'll do it tomorrow. And just for today, I'm going to honor my deep desire to be fully alive and to be healed and to be real. And mm-hmm. eventually the sweetness <laughs> of being a real person with real feelings, having real relationships with people, that's, that's sweet. And that is so much sweeter than what you get from a, a quick hit of sugar. Um, it's totally worth it to me. So I'll sit very happily with my family and they'll be, or friends and people are digging into their sweets and ice cream or whatever the heck it is. And I, I feel just at peace. I, it's, it's not a moral issue. It's not a deprivation issue. It's, um, I am content to be in the present and not to have to deal with what, for me, is difficult 
food. As I hear you, it sounds so compelling. I mean, sugar, I, you wrote about this, you know, it sort of made you sleepy, made you numb, kind of took you out of yeah. aliveness. Yeah. So I hear you saying that for you to choose to be fully present and alive is, is so much sweeter. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so you're so clear about the benefits mm-hmm. that the deprivation is just not the uppermost. What I experience. always want to say to people who are struggling with food is it's, it's worth the fight to get into recovery. It's worth it, and you're worth it. Mm. On that note, Margaret, we're going to have to stop. If someone wants to find you online, what's your website? Holyhunger.org. And I, let me just quickly say I'm writing a, a third book now, um, Love Every Leaf, which is about making peace with the body of the earth. And I hear you say third. What's your second or what's the other one? The second book is called Christ's Passion, Our Passions, and it's, meta- it's reflections on Jesus' last words from the cross. Margaret Bullet jonas it's been a true pleasure to have you as my guest. Thank you so much for being on Safe Space. Thank you so much, Dr. Ann. This is Dr. Ann at WMPG on Safe Space. I've been interviewing Margaret Bullitt-Jonas about her recovery from being a compulsive overeater. If you'd like to listen to this show or send it to someone else, please visit the website at safespaceradio.com. All the shows uh, will be, can be listened to there at any time or downloaded. Um, if you have a request for a future show, please email me at drann at safespaceradio.com. And next coming up is Allison with Money Talks.